The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, and uh, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians, uh, where we have been the last uh, weeks uh, in this uh, summer fellowship. And I'm going to read the entirety of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, reading to the end, and I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, and to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for your members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Well, as we open this portion of God's word, let's ask the Lord himself to open it to our hearts. Almighty Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the giver of the Holy Spirit by whom these words were written, we pray that the Spirit, your Spirit, would come and illumine the page, illumine the text, and apply it to our hearts and bring glory to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the great uh, challenges that humanity has ever struggled with is the whole issue of what is a theme of this chapter, what in some ways was a theme of the, the songs that we have sung, namely the whole issue of unity. And uh, human beings over the centuries, from almost from the very beginning after the, t- the period of the fall, have done everything in their power to deny the fact that human beings are one we, are, we share a unity by virtue of the fact that we have one maker. And you have seen down through the history of humanity, divisions made, divisions on the basis of race or ethnicity, uh, divisions made on the basis of customs, uh, divisions made on the basis of language, uh, divisions made on the basis of economic status, the haves and the have-nots, and that most basic of divisions that every society confronts a division based on gender, the fact that humanity consists of men and women. And in the Roman world, the world in which Paul wrote this letter, it was a world that was also riven by various divisions. From the point of view of the masters of that world, Paul is experiencing as he writes this very text something of the Roman imperium's power because he can say in verse 1 there that he is a prisoner for the Lord. We'll look at this a little bit later, uh, touch on it anyway. Paul knew firsthand what it meant to live in a world dominated by Roman imperial mites. In this context, as he writes these words, he is a prisoner under house arrest. And though masters of that world divided the world into two sets of people, there were the Romans and then there were the barbarians. And uh, that word barbarian over the years has been given a somewhat different meaning than the Romans gave it. For us, it's got to do with issues of culture. And thus you describe somebody, well, he's a barbarian. You know, he doesn't appreciate, say, Bach or Handel or some of the great painters or what have you. Um, But that's not the way the Romans used it. The Romans used it on the basis of the way that the Greeks had coined the word. And the Greek word barbaros was what the Greeks thought they heard when they heard somebody else speaking another language but Greek or trying to speak Greek with a foreign accent. It sounded like bar, 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 and thus they... It's one of these words, what we call, it's an onomatopoeic word. It's a word that sounds like what it means. And so barbarian was brought into the Greek language. The Romans took it over. And the language, the the divider was on language, not culture. Barbarians were those who didn't know the great language of the Roman world, namely Latin. And because they loved the Greeks, they gave pride a place also to the Greeks Anybody else was a barbarian, and that was the great divider. And thus, when they heard Jews speaking in Aramaic or Hebrew, which has a very guttural sound to it, 
It was horrifying to Roman ears. These men, obviously, in their minds were true barbarians. And they were not, in the Roman mind, fully human. Because anybody who was fully human would be able to speak Latin or Greek. Well, the... One of the groups that they derided as being uh, barbaric, the Jews, also made a division. There were the circumcised and the uncircumcised. There were the Jews and then the rest of humanity. They were quite certain, unlike the Romans, they were quite certain that there was one God who had made everyone, but that God who had made all beings, human beings, they were convinced, rightly so, from the book of of Genesis, that all humanity comes from one progenitor. If we track all the way back, there is one Adam and then one Eve. And we all come from Adam and Eve. The Jews knew that. However, they also knew that that God was their God and not the God of the Gentiles. And you have this ongoing distrust at best, deep-seated hatred at worst of the Gentile world. You see it in the Old Testament, God seeking to break this down. Israel was to be a light to the nations. God ever intended that the nations would come and worship him. And Israel was to, be, was to draw them. And you have the great book in the Old Testament. It's a very important book, the book of Jonah, very small. But it shows you a typical Jewish mindset, just the horror of the idea that God would have any concern for the Assyrians a Gentile people. And so you have these barriers that were erected. You have barriers of, as in our world, barriers of economic status, haves and have-nots. In the Roman world, it was slave and free. We're told that by some historians, at least historically, 50% of the Roman world were slaves. That probably is a bit of an exaggeration. Recent historians are now telling us. But still, slavery is a dominant fact. It's not the sort of slavery that was practiced by European nations in the last 300 years or so, which was ethnically based and based on racism. It is rather a slavery where the Romans, whoever they conquered, they'd kill some of the ruling population, and then they'd enslave the rest. It didn't matter who. And, uh, but that division of slave and free. And then the basic division of men and women. Uh, The Roman world's a man's world. And all of the peoples of the ancient Near East and the ancient Mediterranean world, it's a man's world. It varies from culture to culture. Probably the Greeks were the worst. Um, Their treatment of women uh, in some ways, and I say this cautiously, uh, parallels certain Muslim cultures in the way they viewed women. Uh, The Romans were a bit freer. The Egyptians were even freer. But essentially, it was a man's world, and law and culture was weighted against women and in favor of men, and these basic divisions of that world. And the text before us challenges all of that, because right at the beginning, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about the unity of the Spirit, and he talks about these uh, triads of ones in Verses 4 and 5, there is uh, one body, one spirit, one hope. The first triad, the second triad, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then all who have one father. 
And this really dominates his thinking in the first half of this, of this chapter. The second half of the chapter talks rather in terms of a call to holiness. In view of the fact that we are one body in Christ, this is how we should live with each other. And uh, Paul, and I'm going to focus on the first part of the chapter with occasional allusion to the second part, but from verses 17 down to verse 32, he's talking about practical instruction in the body of Christ. And it's particularly based on the fact that from verses 17 to 24, God has done a new thing. Because of who we are, we are new people. In fact, together, Christians constitute a new humanity in one sense. We are a new man in Christ. Because of the newness of what God has done, we need to live in accord with who we are. And if we had time to look at the way Paul understands ethics, how you admonish people, how you urge people to live holy lives, he, his ethic is always be what you are. God has done something in our lives. He's made us new in Christ. We are new creatures. We need to live that way. And when we sin as Christians in the various ways that Paul talks about here, falsehood, telling lies to one another, when we are guilty of unjustifiable anger, when we steal, when we allow corrupting talk and slander and wrath and clamor come out of our mouths, we are not acting, if we are in Christ, in harmony with who we are. And uh, Paul's ethic there very much in the first part of the the second half of the chapter from verses 17 to 24, this is who we are. We are, a new, we are new people. Therefore, this is how we ought to live, verses 25 to 32. But the first half of the chapter is where I would like to focus. And as I said, it is dominated by this idea of unity. And it's a very challenging chapter, and we'll see that there are two themes that kind of run through it. One is the doctrine of the Trinity, because of who God is, this is what he expects of his people. And then the second is this whole area of gifts in the body of Christ and a certain area of giftedness. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the New Testament, well, the New Testament, let me just... Uh, preface my remarks regarding these triads, the New Testament assumes throughout its pages that God is a triune being. It assumes God the Holy Trinity. The word triunity, the word trinity, the word triune, these are not words found on the pages of Scripture, but they are words coined, uh, a number of them coined by the uh, uh, Roman theologian, the Latin-speaking theologian, Tertullian, who was North African in the late second century, and he coined them on the basis of the New Testament witness. And I know sometimes if you ever wake up on those uh, Saturday mornings when you're trying to sleep in or you're still in your pajamas and you're about to sit down to a delicious plate of pancakes and you hear the knock on the door, and you can tell this has happened to me on more than one occasion, and you go to the door and there's these two folk there. Usually they come in twos. And... Um, they're Jehovah's Witnesses, and you get into a discussion with them. And, and uh, if you have time, I would encourage you to discuss the faith with them. 
Um, and I always try to give them as much time as I've got until they eventually decide to scamper or scarper or whatever. And um, I don't want to talk about what they want to talk about. What they want to talk about is usually things like uh, uh, issues about blood and oaths to the state and where we're going to end up in the end times. I want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him and are they actually in a living relationship with the true God, which invariably brings up the Trinity. And one of their invariable replies is, well, that word's not a biblical word. Well, it may, the word may not be biblical, but the theme and the idea is the New Testament is filled with the assumption that when we encounter God, we encounter him as Father, Son, and Spirit. And sometimes in the enumeration of the three persons of the Godhead, uh, for example, the baptismal formula, you are to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is the frequent order that those, that, that the, uh, the, the, the naming of the Trinity comes in. Father and then the Son and then the Spirit. You'll notice here Paul reverses the order. There is one body, one Spirit, and then one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then one God and Father of all. It is as if he is doing, instead of looking at the way in which salvation has come to us, the biblical understanding of salvation that is that within the Trinity, you have three co-equal beings, persons who share the same being, and yet there is order in the Trinity, the Father is not the Son. He is the Father of the Son. And the Father sends the Son. And the Father and the Son, this is a debatable issue, but I believe the Father and the Son send the Spirit. There is order within the Trinity. And that order normally is expressed by Father, Son, and Spirit, that order in which salvation has come to us. It was the Father who sends the Son, and the Son comes and dies for us, and he sends the Spirit to make the work of his redemption a reality. But here you have more, rather a Trinitarian pattern that proceeds from our experience, because the first person of the Godhead we experience is the Spirit. It is normally in the context of hearing about the Son, hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, and whom the Father had sent. But it is the Spirit who comes and touches our hearts. It is the Spirit who comes and sheds the love of Christ in our hearts, or the love of God, Romans 5.5. 5. It is the Spirit who enables us to cry out to Jesus and name him Lord. And so our first experience of the triune God is the Spirit. And he focuses our attention on Jesus. Now, in due course, if that experience is real, we come to know the Father and the Spirit, and we profess the Trinity. But it's interesting the order that Paul has here. He begins then with the fact that the, there is one Spirit, not a multitude of spirits out there, but one Holy Spirit. And uh, that means then that in the light, and we won't uh, get uh, bogged down on this, but that means that in the light of the New Testament, that one could go through the New Testament and enumerate the general ways in which the Spirit works. I was away uh, up north uh, this past week in the Muskokas, and I picked up at a bookstore a book written by uh, Tom Harper. 
Some of you know that name very well. I've never read anything by Harper before in terms of a book size. I know very well about him. I went to Wycliffe College in the 1970s and 1980s, and Tom Harper had been there as a professor of New Testament in the 1960s. He was one of the golden boys of uh, evangelical Anglicanism in that period of time. Well, he's gone a far way, and I would argue a far way astray since then. And the book I picked up was Born Again from Fundamentalism, and I forget the last part of it, something about freedom, from fundamentalism to freedom. And in there, he's talking about how the Holy Spirit has guided him to, to, to put his faith in God, but now he believes about Christ is actually never existed. It's quite a remarkable book. He doesn't believe Christ ever existed. And uh, the th- one thing that struck me was his use of the term Holy Spirit. It is not the Holy Spirit who is guiding him or leading him. And one could go through the New Testament, and because there is one Holy Spirit, one could enumerate what the Spirit does in believers' lives. One of the things he does is he brings us into the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, again talking about the believer's experience of the Spirit, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Jew or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul takes the experience of the spirit in the believer's life and his bringing us into the church and looks at it from the angle of baptism. What happens at conversion is a, an experience which the New Testament calls the baptism of the Spirit. Now, I know that disagrees with certain strands of Christian thought in the 20th century, thinking here of Pentecostalism. But I think a plain reading of this text is we have all been baptized into one body. Not just some. We were all baptized, and that is the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit brings us into the one body, the church, And then from another angle, because Paul's obviously got the image of water in mind, baptism speaks of water. It's being debated over the years how much water, but we'll leave that to one side. It speaks of water, and he now thinks of the experience of the Spirit is like drinking the Spirit. All Christians have the Spirit. We were all made to drink of the same Spirit. As Paul could say in Romans 8 verse 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There is no place in thinking about Christian experience, in thinking about the Spirit's work in the believer's life, to argue that some have the Spirit and some don't. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's why George Whitfield would frequently, in his preaching of the gospel, in a country in the 18th century, namely England, which was where nominal Christianity was rampant, would ask his hearers, do you know that you are indwelt by the Spirit? Do you feel the Spirit in you? And a Christian knows that the Spirit of God indwells him. That is, a, that is an assumption of the New Testament. And so there is the the work of the Spirit then. There is one Spirit. He brings us into one body. There is one body. There is one church. There are numerous manifestations of that body. The 
meeting house or chapel or building that we're meeting in tonight is when it's uh, uh, the congregation of Westminster Chapel gather here from week to week in various capacities. That is one local manifestation of the body of Christ. But there is one body. And uh, over the centuries that followed this, these letters that Paul wrote, that body was described as the Catholic Church. And the great word Catholic means universal. And I can publicly say here tonight that I belong to the Catholic Church. You'll notice I didn't use an a adjective prior to the word Catholic, namely Roman. I was raised in the Roman Church. And uh, I am not a Roman Catholic, but I belong to the Catholic Church. If you don't belong to the Church, you're not a Christian. I fully buy the statement of Cyprian, the early, another early North African church father, who said, if you do not have the church as your mother, you cannot have God as your father. John Calvin picks that up, and actually the Westminster Confession alludes to that same sort of idea. And if you're a Christian, you belong to the church, the church Catholic. And there is one holy Catholic Church. It is not identifiable with an institution known as the Roman Catholic Church. And if you are in Christ, you belong to that body. It has many manifestations, but there is one body. And our great longing is that that one body would one day be seen in its great unity. And the divisions that divide us now a thing of the past. And the Spirit not only baptizes us into one body, he gives us one hope. And that hope is obviously the hope of the new heavens, the new earth, or what Paul talks about later in the chapter, in verse 30, the day of redemption. There is a day coming when the sons and daughters of God will be revealed for who they are, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his bride, and there is the consummation and the new heavens and the new earth. And living in this world is not tragedy, but God will bring about restoration and renewal. And that's our hope. And the Spirit gives us hope. And this Christian is a hopeful person. And then the second triad is the Spirit leads us to confess one Lord. There is in the Christian life confession a thought-out statement about Jesus. He is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, except by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? It is not simply a confession, well, he's my boss. You know, He's the one who I take my orders from. Of course it's that. But it's more than that. The word Lord, kyrios, uh, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, as I did you know, prior to the uh, Vatican II, you will remember in the Latin liturgy uh, the phrase Kyrie eleison, which is repeated a couple of times with Christi eleison. Kyrie is Lord. It's a word that was taken over from Greek into, into, from, uh, into Latin from Greek, and it comes from the word Kyrios. And it's the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate that word that some of the rabbis said that we cannot pronounce, 
which later English translators would translate as Jehovah, or as Bible scholars tell us today, shall be Yahweh. That word in the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek for Jews living outside of Palestine, was translated as Kyrios. It is a divine title. When I say Jesus is Kyrios, I am making a statement about his being. He is God. I'm not just making a statement that he's my boss. I am making a statement about his being. He is Lord. In Paul's day, that statement is also a political statement, as it is today. You know, sometimes uh, I, I have, well, I have some friends who, who tell me, you know, the church has got nothing to do with politics. Well, we've got everything to do with politics. I'm affirming that one day all the political systems of this world are going to be trumped by God. And he's going to uh, reveal his kingdom. When I say Jesus is Lord, I am I'm saying at the same time that there is no earthly being who, takes my, who has sovereignty over my life and thinking only Jesus, ultimately. If I'm living in a democracy, that's, that's not a problem. If I'm living as Paul was in a dictatorship, that's a very strong political statement, especially if the dictators thought some of them they were God, as uh, a number of the Roman emperors did. To say Jesus is Kyrios means Caesar is not Kyrios. It's a political statement. And so to affirm then the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus as Lord, is to affirm his right of sovereignty over your life. It is to affirm his deity. In fact, Jesus can say in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am, that's what the actual Greek says. The translation normally have, if you do not believe that I am he, but the Greek says, if you do not believe that I am, a, a, a harking back to that statement with Moses, when Moses was asked to go and deliver the people of Israel, who, who will I say sent me? Well, you, I am who I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And that's why at the end of John 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> You're not yet 50 years old. How can you be older than Abraham? The Jews said. And Jesus goes on to make an affirmation of his deity. And the Jews knew exactly what he was doing. And they picked up stones to kill him because he blasphemed. Jesus is fully God. My confession of him as Lord is not merely he's my boss. But I am making a confession with my mouth that one day my body will profess when with all of the saints we fall in adoration before him. That is one faith. Christians differ. There's no doubt about that. If anybody who does what I do, the study of the history of the church, knows that Christians differ. But at the core, there is one faith. There are things we disagree on. And in fact, the word that follows in uh, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one baptism is the thing that Christians have disagreed on. But at the heart, there is one faith. That is, it is by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved from our sins and that God raised him from the dead and he is coming again. There is one gospel that we preach 
And the essential doctrines of the Christian faith number about a dozen or so. But if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. There is one faith that has been handed on to the church. Here I think, though, that Paul is probably thinking of the faith that saves you. And then there is one baptism. There has been debates on, the, on this word over, on a number of issues. The one debate I'm thinking of is the one that Martin Lloyd-Jones introduces in his great six-volume commentary on Ephesians, a, a, a book for each of the chapters, in which he argues that Paul here is talking about the baptism of the Spirit. I hate to disagree with Lloyd-Jones on anything, um, but I would disagree with him on that because I think that Paul has already covered the baptism of the Spirit in the previous verse when he's talked about one body, one spirit. Then he's talking then about the baptism that witnesses to the faith or that is part of the Christian faith. And then the whole issue arises and it arose early in the church about who is to be baptized. And I won't pursue that here. It is an issue that I encourage you to have convictions about and to know why you believe what you believe. But it is an area that Christians have divided over over the years, but it doesn't, please note this, this is the point I'm making, it does not separate us from our Lord. We can, there are certain areas of the Christian life with which we can disagree, and uh, disagreements on the nature of baptism do not separate us from the Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then one God and Father of all. It is, as I said, a Trinitarian text, and our great profession about God is he is a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the unity of which Paul is speaking here, we've already alluded in, uh, in the uh, first talk in which I uh, talked about the, the background to the book of Ephesians. One of the things I touched on in there somewhat briefly was the fact that Paul was a prisoner for this unity. About three years before he wrote this letter, he wrote this letter between around 61, maybe as late as 62. In the year 58, in Romans, in the book of Romans, when he was writing Romans in 58, from the city of Corinth, and he wrote to the Romans and said, I'm hoping to come to Rome, but before I come to you, I'm off to Jerusalem, and I'm taking to Jerusalem a collection for the saints. This is Romans 15, 22 and following. And that collection of money that he was taking to Jerusalem was a collection of money that he had been gathering for the best part of 10 years, between 48, 49, and 58. Ever since the apostles, Peter, James, and John, whom he had met in Jerusalem around 48 or 49, had told him, remember the poor, Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. And they meant the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul had begun a collection of money from the various Gentile churches, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4 is the earliest reference we have to that. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 is an extensive discussion of it. And in those chapters, Paul is still thinking of it primarily as a collection of money, which he may or may not personally take up to Jerusalem. By Romans 15, he has come to the realization that this money to help poor Jewish saints, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem collected from Gentile Christians is a fabulous illustration of oneness in the body of Christ. And Paul decided to go up with it because it had now assumed, it had become symbolic of the fact that in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, which is the big issue of the early church, 
They are one in Jesus. And he went up to Jerusalem and he was nearly beaten to death in the temple. He was arrested. And so when Paul describes himself in Ephesians 4, 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, he was a prisoner for, he had come into the imprisonment and was a prisoner for the Lord for the sake of the unity of the church. And one of the, one of the things, uh, questions that has come to me in recent days that I think is a very challenging question, if I were to ask you, would you die for the Lord Jesus Christ? And I would trust that probably all of us who are Christians would say, yes, we might have various mental reservations. Uh, you know, can I choose the way it happens? And, you know, I don't want to be slow and torture, etc., etc., etc. But I would suspect we'd be thinking, yes, if God gives me grace and calls me into that situation, then I would be willing as a Christian to die for my witness to the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the next question, though, is this on the basis of Paul's willingness to go up to Jerusalem and die for the church. Would you die for the unity of the church? That's a different kettle of fish. Or is it? If you love the Lord Jesus, you love his church. They're a given. And that's why, although the church can sometimes be a frustrating body, and I'm talking about the local manifestations of the church, and how sometimes some of those in the church or ornery characters. But these are your blood-bought blood brothers and sisters with whom you one day will spend eternity. And if you love Christ, you love his people. And uh, this is what grips Paul then. And then he goes on in the, the section, how does the church how is this unity nurtured? He's urged his readers to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be zealous for the unity of the church. When you, when you decide to leave a local body of believers, you need to think through that issue very carefully and have good biblical reasons for doing so. You don't just up and leave because, well, I can't stand the, you know, the, the usher meets me every week, you know, I'm out of here. You know, you have to have good biblical reasons why you leave a church. But how does the church grow? And Paul lists here a number of gifts in the church. And um, he mentions five or four gifts of the risen Christ. If we wanted to do an extensive study of the gifts that God gives his church, we would need to go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Romans chapter 12 and 1 Peter 4 just to name the obvious places where you would need to go. Here, uh, he gives us those who are in leadership in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then either two more, pastors and teachers, or shepherds and teachers, or one more, pastor teachers. And uh, John Calvin believed there were five groups, five types of gifts here. Other commentators believe there's only four because the phrase, the shepherds and teachers, and I'm reading from the ESV and I trust your translation has the same. There is only one definite article before those two words. And some scholars say they're both linked together, that a pastor is a teacher and a teacher in the church is a pastor and they go belong together. What a privilege it is, though, to have these sorts of gifts given 
to the church. Recently, I was reading, you know, you, I've gotten onto Facebook. I was on Twitter for a while. I, I came to the real conclusion that Twitter was a complete, utter, total waste of time, clogging up my email, and so I got off Twitter. But I'm still on Facebook, and it has value in certain respects. And I followed a conversation. I won't give any more details beyond uh, the following remarks, lest you try to look it up and find out who I'm talking about. I followed a conversation recently on Facebook about how we as Christians, uh, the the, the discussion started with somebody saying, um, the only book we need to read is the Bible. And we shouldn't be, we don't need to read anybody else. And the guy said, I'm sick and tired of people telling me I've got to read. And then he named John Stott, who recently has gone to be with the Lord. Uh, He named John Stott, I think Lloyd-Jones, and Calvin. I forget, there were three. And the discussion followed an interesting number of threads. And most people were saying, man, you're dead on. You know, who needs all these people anyway, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking of this text. And... um, I don't know what I've got myself in for necessarily, but I kind of added a comment because this guy's on my Facebook. And I said, well, do you need the body of Christ? And if we need the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, there are gifts. And some of these gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, either one or two offices. And... um, I think the apostles and prophets, and I'll, I'll come to this in a second, are the foundation of the church, and they are no longer are with us, uh, contrary to what some might say. But we still have evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and they are a great gift to the church. Our great danger is to make them celebrities and to be guilty of celebrification. But I think that this track on Facebook I was reading went to the opposite extreme. What would the church be without gifted teachers like Calvin and Cramner and John Owen and John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards and Andrew Fuller and B.B. Warfield and Martin Lloyd-Jones? And Where would we be? In the providence of God, God has given the gifts to mature the church. He has given us individuals. We need to pray that God would raise up such people. Not that we could dispense with them, but that he would raise them up. Of course they are under the authority of Scripture. Of course at the foundation of the church are those whom Paul describes here as apostles and prophets. He's already mentioned that back in chapter 2, verse 20. We are built as the household of God on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We belong, and if you noticed earlier when I talked about the Catholic church I belong to, I didn't mention one of the early early descriptors of that church, which is we belong to one, whole, one, one church, holy. Why? Because indwelt by the Spirit. Catholic, apostolic church. Because we are built in the foundation of the apostles and we have that gift still with us in Holy Scripture. No, we need these gifts. We need to pray that God would raise up faithful men. Men like John Stott, having gone home to the Lord, we need to pray that God would raise up those who would replace him and stand in his stead. That the church might grow in the unity of its faith and grow in maturity and be what God wants her to be in this day.
It's a rich text. At the foundation of our experience is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He brings men and women from diverse backgrounds, from different ethnic groups, different language groups, different economic strata, men and women, into the one body where they can use their gifts for the upbuilding of one another and the glory of God. May God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be blessed by our meditations upon this word and our acting on it. Let me stop here briefly. Before we sing a concluding hymn, um, we have a f- few minutes for questions. It's warm, so I won't prolong this. If, uh, but if you have a question you would like to, to ask on this passage, um, it's about uh, 17 minutes to 9. Uh, I'd be happy to entertain it, and then we can maybe take two or three, and then we can close in a hymn. The question was, uh, my statement was that a person is not a Christian without the Holy Spirit. The, the question then is that uh, would the disciples, uh, what, what, what do you do with the disciples between uh, the uh, resurrection, was it the resurrection? I would say ascension. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, Pentecost, which is uh, about, four, about ten days. Um, they really fall in that unique period between the times and I, my suspicion, again, it depends on how you understand the relationships of the covenants and when was the new covenant inaugurated. Was the new covenant inaugurated uh, at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was the new covenant inaugurated at the Lord's ta- Last Supper? Um, I think the new covenant is inaugurated with the outpouring of the Spirit when the Spirit comes to make a reality what Christ died for. In which case, the disciples' experience falls in they are still in the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, the presence of the Spirit was in the, the temple. And uh, God's, uh, God's uh, manifestation of himself in the temple was the way the Spirit was in ancient Israel. And um, so, in the New Covenant, from Pentecost forward, maybe I should have qualified it, uh, to be a Christian is to be indwelt by the Spirit. But whatever, however you cut it, the experience of the disciples is a bit unique. That's what Jesus says in John 14. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, is with you, and he will be in you. And the in you is there in the future. But yeah, there, there are disagreements about how exactly that works out. From Pentecost onwards, to be a Christian is to have the Spirit. But it's a, very, it's a very good question. Uh, the comment was that, that's a comment. Not a, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. comment was that after the, uh, the, uh, the ascension, the disciples were continually in the temple, which again, I think then would indicate that the temple is still at that point a proper focal point for worship. By the time you get into the new covenant, the church now is, we are the temple. Uh, Ephesians 2 brings that out. The God is, the Holy Spirit is building a temple. And we're the temple. 
and we're living stones. And, but up, up until the Spirit comes, it's quite appropriate for the temple to be that uh, focal point. So, thank you. Uh, the question was, in the uh, experience of the body of Christ, uh, is the witness, uh, is, the, is the understanding of ministry within the body uh, more an egalitarian or more complementarian? And by the words egalitarian, you're meaning, uh, are, is the office of a ruling teaching elder open to a woman uh, in the body of Christ, which is the egalitarian view, and the complementarian view is it is not? Um, for me, the, the problem is, uh, well, first of all, let me back up. In the world in which Paul lived, it was very much a patriarchal world. And the, the Jewish world was one in which women were, were very much, being a woman was very much an impediment. And that was, that was seen in the temple. Because you have the court of the Gentiles, and then you'd go up a few flight, a flight of stairs, and then you had the court of the women, and a woman could go no further because then there was the court of Israel and then the, the priests and the, and the inner sanctum. Um, and so even the, the structure of worship indicated to women that somehow they couldn't draw as close to God as men. And there was in synagogue worship, how wide, we don't know, there was in synagogue worship that comes into synagogue worship uh, in the early centuries, a prayer, thank you, God, for making me uh, a Jew, not a Gentile. Thank you, God, for making me a free man, not a slave. Thank you, God, for making me a, a man and not a woman. Now, it's obviously women weren't <laughs> praying that prayer. Um, <clears throat> and I won't go through the range of ideas that rabbis had about women. And it's, it's, it's disturbing. And then you get the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching of Martha and Mary and the, the women who minister to him, uh, the, the first witnesses are women. You get the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 in that long list of 26 uh, greetings, uh, names uh, that he mentions by na- people mentions by name. He's got nine women. And there is this deep appreciation that in the body of Christ, women have vital roles to play. Um, however, for me personally, 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is... Uh, I think uh, a, key, a key text where Paul addresses the whole issue of uh, leadership within the body of Christ. Um, I do not think that a woman should be a ruling teaching elder within the body of Christ. Um, I have no problem with a woman addressing a congregation of men and women uh, on occasion. That's not a problem at all. I mean, I mean, in the world in which I work, an academic world, uh, some of there are some remarkable historians who are women, and uh, fabulous historians, and I could name easily uh, uh, five or six just like that. But I think in the church that there is an order. Uh, there's an order in the family. I think uh, husbands are the head of of uh, the ideal model that God gives to the to a local a family is the husband is the head of, of his family. And we rebel against that to some degree because of our culture. But there's order in the world. There's a high, the world is hierarchical. I mean, I'm a child of the 60s. I've, I've got all these egalitarian impulses pulsing through my veins. 
but a lot of it is rebellion against the order that God has put in the world. And there are police officers, and there are authorities in schools, and uh, I'm a person under authority. And I have a, uh, my department of church history at uh, Southern, I have a, there's a head of the department. And if he, as um, uh, recently, well, in the last three years, I had wanted, uh, I thought maybe I should get another PhD in an area. And I told him, and he said, well, I'll take this to the vice president, because that would mean time away. And they came back and said, we don't think you should do that. And I'm under authority. And uh, I think, uh, this, I, I, again, you need to understand I'm a child of the 50s, uh, 60s rather. I, I am only learning, I think I've only learned in the last few years what it means to be obedient to authorities. And I finally, after 30 years as a Christian, a lot of those rebellious patterns, I think, are finally getting weaned out of me. Now, just wait, something will happen and... It'll all flare up. But the whole of our culture is under authority. You have prime ministers and authority figures. And within the church, there are those who are in authority, elders and deacons, and obviously, ultimately, uh, God. The apostles rule us through their words. And um, I cannot get beyond 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 through 15. And then also, and some would argue that this really doesn't carry much weight, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ only chose 12 men, and he didn't choose women actually to be among his apostles. And I think that has some weight, because Jesus is never afraid, ever afraid to challenge his culture. Again and again, he he goes out of his way to attack errors in his culture. And uh, this does not mean, I, I hope that I've understood the history of the church are right. This does not mean that only men have a role to play. When I was taught the history of the church in the 70s, uh, the, the questions about women's role in the church had not yet been really been raised. And so I was taught a church, basically, it was, you know, it was all these men. And I've had to spend 30 years bringing into my teaching of history the, a host of women um, who play a vital role in the handing on the faith and so on, and uh, prayer. And uh, I'm a Baptist, and in Baptist churches typically, except for times of revival, usually the membership, the, the statistics between women and men is usually 60% women as members, 40% men. And women have had the lion's share in many respects of the faithful attendance, the praying, the giving, the raising of the children, etc., etc. So any of my remarks then regarding the formal roles of leadership within the church do not in any way, shape, or form want to uh, diminish, I hope, my appreciation. And uh, I'm married. And I know that my wife has saved me from innumerable falls and sillinesses. And even this past week, I had to admit to her about two things uh, which are a long-standing discussion between us. Uh, you were right 10 years ago, and I was wrong. <laughs> and that, I hope, is my delight. Yeah, so, 
Any, well, maybe one more question before we close with uh, a hymn. Uh, he, he, could, he could be at that point doing one of two things. He could be using those different prepositions over, uh, through, and in, uh, just simply to reinforce the, the point that God is omnipresent and sovereign. But I do think that probably the over indicates his sovereignty over all things. Definitely the through and the in indicate his, his presence in all things. And he's obviously thinking here about the church, that God is sovereign over the church. And uh, God is present in all of her dealings. And at every turn when we gather, we gather in the name of the Lord Jesus. God is there. And so there is a sense of the constant presence of God in the church and his sovereignty over the church. Um, So I personally would not want to say that the over, the in, and the through are simply, they're all saying the same thing. I think there are different nuances here. One of sovereignty and one of presence. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.